0: Wow. Thank you, guys. invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. A couple of times Chad said, worship is a response to the gospel. And so I've asked them to allow us to do just that. You don't have to sing always to worship, but it is an awesome way to worship. And so at the end of the message, some of you are used to, as soon as the message is over you're trying to beat every other church to the cafeteria. Don't be in a hurry to leave. We're going to sing a couple of songs at the end of the message today. So I invite you to uh, participate in that as we respond to the gospel. The title of the message today is Adopted. And if I was to ask, and I don't want you to do this, but if I was to put you on the spot and say, how many people in here have been adopted? There's some because I know you. You would raise your hand. I was adopted as an infant or as a child. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about adoption. I want to read a passage from David Platt's book on Galatians because he's adopted two children. He says the adoption process is challenging on so many different levels. One of the most challenging things that my wife and I have found has been hearing how many people talk about adoption. People can tell that my daughter and one of my sons have been adopted. And when we share their stories, people say, oh, that's so nice. Do you also have children of your own? He said, that's phrase number one, not to say to an adoptive parent. I want to say, come here real close. I have a secret. They're ours. (laughs) And then he describes a few more of the wrong things to say. But then he summarizes by saying these phrases, myths, and misconceptions about adoption are not just annoyances to parents who have been brought through the adoption process. They're symptoms of something deeper. They show how little we understand what it means to be a part of God's family. Even our infatuation with the biological and adopted labels and the distinction between the two shows our tendency to qualify children into categories based around flesh and blood. As long as that's the case, we'll struggle with a gospel that tells the story of a spiritual, transracial adoption that changes the lives of each of us for all eternity. We are adopted into the families of God, family of God, and the implications of this are huge for understanding and living out Christianity. As a child of God, you've been adopted. So my prayer would be by the end of the message that everyone could raise their hand saying, yes, I've been adopted. One of the things I, that is special to me about Parkwood, I was actually on staff there for about 15 years, about 100 years ago. From 1986 to 2001, I was youth pastor and then staff evangelist at Parkwood Baptist Church in Gastonia. And there was a girl in our youth group that had been adopted, and we talked a lot about it. And I said, you know, you and I have something in common. She said, what do you mean? So we've both been adopted. I said, you were adopted by earthly parents. I've been adopted by a heavenly father. And I said, the neat thing about you, you were adopted by two parents who came and met you and saw you and said, we want that one. My parents were stuck with what they got. <laughs> but there's cool spiritual parallels into that concept of adoption. And we're going to get to that before the end of the message because it is a true spiritual blessing that we've been adopted into God's family if we have through faith come to Jesus Christ. So let me read just the first part of Galatians 3, three, nineteen. 19 through 22, just for the first point. In fact, I'm going to back up to 18. We don't have this on the screen, but this is where we were last week. I just want to show you the transition. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God is granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Then the question, verse 19, why then the law, or why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. First part of chapter 3 and really the first part of Galatians, we've seen what faith can do. Last week we looked at what the law cannot do and so it would be a great question then to say, so why do we even have the law? And that's a question that Paul anticipates from the Galatians and perhaps even the Judaizers that were infiltrating the church. And so he asked the question for them. It's as if he's saying, I know you're thinking this, let's just get this on the table. Why the law then? Why was there a rule or standard? Why did God find it necessary to call Moses up on the mountain and give him the Ten Commandments? Now, how many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? Anybody? How many? Yeah, just shout it out when you know There's ten. That's right. Very good. But how many laws were there in the Old Testament besides the Ten Commandments? You don't have to know this one. Hundreds. Hundreds of Old Testament law. And they were given by God for a purpose. So you don't just have the Ten Commandments that everybody knows. We see them on walls of places. and In fact, a lot of places now are trying to decide whether they put them up or take them down. But there's hundreds of Old Testament law. And so Paul says, so why was the law there? He said it was added because of transgressions. And it's interesting he uses the word transgressions. It literally means stepping over a boundary. He doesn't use the word sin. He uses the word transi- trans- transgressions because it is more a breaking of the code, a stepping over a boundary. Now, we're all sinners. Sin began back in the garden and it's continued since then. Christ came to die to pay the penalty for our sins, but Paul elsewhere says, you know, it's written on the heart, even of a Gentile who didn't have the Old Testament law, you know right and wrong. It gets dimmed a little bit in a dark culture, but it's, it's so that God could point out the transgressions that people were already breaking. It was because transgressions were there that the law came and it had a very distinct and necessary purpose. It was ordained through the angels, through the agency of a mediator. Hebrews talks about the angels bringing the law, and the mediator, in one sense, was Moses coming from the mountain. But then he asked the question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? See, God had made a promise to Abraham hundreds of years before the Ten Commandments. And what was that promise? The promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you through your seed there's going to be a myriad of people that come after you that are basically from your seed, your child, your offspring. In fact, he takes Moses out on a dark night and says, look up and count the stars. Try that sometime. It's impossible. There's, there's, there's too many of them. And he says to Abraham, you're going to have that many children and more. You're going to have this offspring. It's going to be incredible. There's only one problem. At the time, how many offspring did Abraham have? Zero. And how old was Abraham getting to be? Too old. <laughs> how old was his wife? Too old. <laughs> and so this promise from God to Abraham that he's going to have this seed, this offspring, and a promise is coming, there had to be been times just in the flesh you scratch your head and say, God, have you forgotten me? In fact, on one conversation about the children, Sarah laughed out loud. This is becoming laughable. I'm 90 years old for crying out loud. What are you thinking? Abraham even tried to remedy the situation himself. But God still fulfilled his promise. And through Abraham, we have Christ. And now ultimately, you're here. And so the promise had been made to Abraham. And so when the law came, did it contradict the promise? Paul said, may it never be. The law didn't come to, to conflict with it or to be contrary to it. It actually came as part of the fulfillment of The promise. In fact, if righteousness had come by the law, if it could be based on, out of the law, then we didn't need Christ to come and die on the cross. The law was inadequate. On one of our trips to the Holy Land, we, we, my wife and I take groups to the Holy Land, and I remember walking around the streets of Jerusalem, which the first part of the week, when you're there, we're around the Sea of Galilee and then in the desert, so it's just you're not really close to people. It's kind of spread out. It's a little more laid back. You get to Jerusalem and everything narrows and the crowds expand, and one of these ladies ends up walking beside a very orthodox Jew, had on the full regalia with the tassels and the long sideburns, and here's what he said to her. She was getting nervous, I could tell, by talking to her, by listening to the conversation, and he she finally said, well, here's my advice. Read the Torah, and when you come to a law... Obey it. She looked at me and said, I ain't reading the Torah. Robert, you going to read the Torah? I was like, well, it's okay. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's okay to read that. Here's the problem. If you think that you're going to be righteous by keeping those things in the Torah, that's where the problem comes. And here's what the Jews had done. The Jews had decided if we can perfectly keep the law, then we can be right with God. And what, what Paul is pointing out is that is impossible. And so what did they do? They started trying to narrow down. You know, we can't keep all those hundreds of laws. So they actually added more weight on themselves to say, well, here's how we'll get around. Here's some loopholes. Here's some things that we'll add so that we don't break the law. And you remember when they came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? You know what they were really asking? If we could just keep one, maybe that would make us right with God. So they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one's kind of like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the Jews were still in that mindset. And here's the problem. People, Gentiles, were coming to faith in Christ all over, but especially this letter is written to this region of Galatia, several churches in this region, and Judaizers were coming in. And what they were basically doing is they were coming to faith in Christ. They were adding Christ to the law. So the Gentiles, they were trying to add the law to Christ. And Paul is writing against that. That's really what the whole letter is about. Because anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. It's not Christ plus anything. And so Paul is saying, could we have been righteous based on keeping the law? May it never be. And, and the law had a purpose, but it wasn't to make us righteous. What was it to do? It was to point out our desperate need of a Savior. Verse 22, he says, The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. He says, Scripture, the Word of God, not the law, but Scripture has come to shut up everyone under sin. It has made prisoners of everybody under sin. Anybody ever done an escape room? Y'all done? There's, there's, There's one right up the road, actually, about a mile from here. First one I ever saw was in Orlando. Some others are in Nashville. It's, it's a room now. You go and pay like 20 bucks and they lock you in a room and see if you can get out in an hour. And, and people will pay that. Anybody want to do that, just we'll collect some money afterwards just lock these doors. <laughs> That'll be a new fundraising thing. But no, it's fun. You get clues and all that kind of stuff. You have to solve the clues and you get the key to open the door and you get out. Hopefully you do it in an hour. If not, they open the door for you. But folks, listen. Under... The law, because of what Scripture had pointed out, we were all in an escape room. The problem is, we weren't reading the clues. And we weren't getting out. If we were to keep trying the same thing we always tried, we were going to keep getting the same result we were always getting. And that is, we were enslaved under the law. We've been shut up. Everyone under sin. But there's a promise that was given... To those who believe. So the law had a purpose. The purpose was this. The purpose was to point out our desperate need. The the law was there so that you would realize I can't keep the law. And it would point out our desperate need for a savior. And that was God's plan from the beginning. That he would provide a savior. So we needed a tutor. Verses 23 through 25. But before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So Paul is unpacking a little bit more the reason for the law. We were in custody. Literally, we were under protective custody. The problem is we were being protected from the truth and from responding to God by faith. We were on death row. Romans 3.23 says, All have sin and comes short of the glory of God. So everybody in this room, that applies to us. We were all born into sin. We are all sinners. But Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. So as long as you're kept in custody of sin, you haven't yet received the promise of faith, you're still trying to get there by keeping the law. It's all about self-effort. You're still a prisoner under the influence, the domain of sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what the Gentile Galatian believers have done, they've responded to that message. They've been set free. But now there's a group called the Judaizers that are coming into the church saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, don't don't get so fast. You're not really free because you haven't gone back And been circumcised and kept the ceremonial laws of washings and offerings and all of these things. You need to add that to that. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. The law was a tutor, he says. It's become a tutor, literally a child leader, a guardian. For a Jewish family, they would have either a slave or somebody paid to do this from the time that child was about 17 years old into teenage years would take that child to school would oversee that child's upbringing, that he kept the rules, that he stayed away from the wrong crowd. They were like a tutor is is the word, or a mentor that Paul uses. So that's the illustration, and Paul said that's what the law was doing. In the same way that that tutor took that child to school, the law was taking us to school. And the tutor's job... We would take that child to school so that at the end of his job, once he's finally, the child's old enough, doesn't need the tutor anymore, he can say, okay, you're educated. But what the law was supposed to do is take us to Christ so that at some point we, by faith, respond to Christ and we're now pronounced right with God. We are justified. In fact, Paul addresses this notion of the Jews in the Sermon on the Mount because the Jews thought if they could just keep their traditions... They'd be proclaimed righteous. Matthew 5.20, Sermon on the Mount, one verse says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking this to a group on the side of a hill in the Galilee region to say the most self-righteous people on earth are the scribes and Pharisees. If you could get to heaven based on keeping the law, those dudes would do it because they keep the law better than anybody else. was what, what does Jesus say? Your righteousness has to surpass that. Now for some, that sounds like, oh my gosh, I've just got to be better than they are. No. It means you've got to come to a Savior by faith and recognize, I can't keep the law as good as them, much less better than them. And Jesus has made a way. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. Before God is a righteous judge, you come to him based on your efforts, it doesn't matter how good they are, the gavel falls and you're pronounced guilty. And I think, because of conversations I've had with people, I think some people think it's going to be a balancing act in heaven. They're going to throw all your bad deeds on one side of the scale, all your good deeds on the other, and as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're in. You ever met anybody that thought that? Don't raise your hand if you've ever thought that. (laughs) But I think that's what some people think. I think some people honestly think they're going to get to heaven and they're going to say, well, you let them in, so you've got to let me in. It's not going to be the balancing act. And even if it was, your sin would always tip the scale against you because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus took the sin that was credited to you and took it on himself. And took it to the cross. We needed a tutor. We needed a savior. We needed a tutor that through the law would point to our need for a savior. And so that we would come to Jesus. And helplessly and hopelessly. Cry out for a savior. So we're justified how? Not by keeping the law. We're pronounced innocent by faith. And we're no longer under a tutor. The Judaizers grew up with that tutor, and they just kind of viewed the Gentiles, these people over here, they're just bad boys that didn't have the right tutor. The truth is, as the boy grew up, he didn't need the tutor anymore. As you come to faith in Christ, you don't need the tutor anymore. And then last, this is awesome, we are one in Christ. Keep in mind, the Judaizers still consider themselves a little better than the Galatian Christians, a little bit above It's kind of like God had two sets of children. They may get into heaven, but they're going to have to come in the back door. And Paul says no. Verses 26 and following, and I'm done. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to a promise. You're all sons of God. In the doctrine of justification, we are right with God, the judge. In the doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God the Father. When you read that, if you've come to faith in Christ, don't miss this. If you come to faith in Christ, you're all sons of God. In case you're sitting here thinking, well, time out, I'm a female. Paul specifically uses the word he uses for a reason. He could have said children, and that is not the word he uses here. If your translation says children, it's because somebody wanted to include everybody. Paul did include everybody. He uses the word sons for a specific reason. It had everything to do with heirship. It had everything to do with inheritance. It had nothing to do with gender. In the day that Paul writes this, only a son could have the full rights and privilege of inheritance. And so here's what Paul's saying. Men and women, because of your faith in Christ, you now have the full rights and privileges of inheritance of God the Father. You're all sons, legally, of God. And some of you are saying, oh, wait a minute, he still says sons. Well, then he goes on to say, listen, just to make it clear, there's not slave or free, there's not male or female. There's not Jew or Gentile. What's Paul saying? The distinctions that you've made on earth, church, doesn't hold in heaven. We're all equal at the cross. And we all fully participate in the inheritance of the promise that God has made way back there to Abraham, now thousands of years ago. There's no racial, social, or sexual disc- discrimination If that is true then, the last verse applies. If you have come to faith in Christ, you've trusted Him for your salvation, you believe in Jesus, that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and that God raised Him from the dead, and that He's coming back. Then, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to a promise. Let that sink in. And I'll close with just four application points. If that's true, if you are a child of God, then four things I want you to leave thinking today, and I'll do these quickly. Number one, you have been set free. You're no longer shut up under sin and the law. You've been set free. Second, you've been justified by faith. Literally, you have been declared judiciously, judicially innocent. There's not a hung jury here. The judge has already dropped the gavel, and everyone that is in Christ has been pronounced justified. You are innocent. Just as if you'd done it right. Just as if I'd always done the right thing. Number three, you're a partaker of the inheritance of sonship, you're a legal heir. and you are immersed in and clothed in Christ. I kind of skipped past that, but he, he said you've been baptized into Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. You've literally been invested with clothing. You've been baptized. You've been overwhelmed. You've been, we're not talking about water baptism here. We're talking about a spiritual significance, and he's using baptism, that word that means immersed or overwhelmed fully, to say that's you now. You didn't just get a little bit of Jesus. You got it all you're now a joint heir with Christ. In fact, in God's mind, you're seated with Him already in the heavenly places. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth of the Gospel. And Lord, now even as we respond to that truth, God, would we respond, would we sing as men and women who are free? We're free in Christ. May we sing as men and women who recognize we're not under captivity to the law anymore. Jesus has paid the price for my sin. He paid it when I couldn't possibly pay it. That ought to change the way I live my life. That ought to change the way I represent the gospel to everybody else. So, Lord, as we sing now, inhabit the praise of your people. May we respond to the truth of the gospel. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.